Welcome back to Happy Porch Radio, the digital agency podcast for progressive agency owners and web professionals. Season four is an exploration of diversity in our industry, especially gender diversity. This season, your host, Barry O'Kane, is joined by some wonderful co-hosts for conversations with agency leaders and diversity and inclusion experts. Hello, and welcome back to Happy Porch Radio. In this episode, Erica and I speak to April Wenzel, who is founder of Compassionate Coding, a company bringing emotional intelligence and ethics to the tech industry. The work that April is doing with Compassionate Coding is one of the coolest and most inspiring things I've come across, and it is amazing to have her on the show. Our conversation touches on why April started Compassionate Coding and how vital emotional intelligence and caring is to the future of our industry, especially in the context of diversity. So let's meet April. My name is April Wenzel. I'm the founder of Compassionate Coding. I'm a software engineer, and I've been doing that for 10 years. And now I help teams become more emotionally intelligent. Awesome. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. And also joining us this week is Erica back again. Hi, Erica. Hey, Barry. Good to have you back. Thanks. It's good to be here. So April, as we know, we talked this season of the, of the podcast is about diversity and diversity in teams. But before doing that, I wanted to talk a little bit about why compassionate coding and I guess a little bit about the backstory to what led you to be doing what you're doing now? Sure. Yeah. So as I mentioned, I've been working as a software engineer for the past 10 years, mostly up in Silicon Valley. And I had a lot of fun doing that. I learned a lot, worked on a lot of cool projects, but I noticed a lot of problems with the industry as well. Uh, For one, there weren't a lot of people around who looked like me, not a lot of women. Two, I noticed that there was just a lot of conflict on teams, a lot of seemingly silly things that would erupt into really contentious kind of arguments. I mean, you you hear things like tabs versus spaces or Vim versus Emacs kind of being these uh, huge debates that people, you know, have like zero empathy in. And then I started to see, you know, unethical products being built, you know, using user data in unethical ways and kind of designing products that prey on people's addictions and things like that. And so I thought that a lot of times people try to solve each of these problems individually, but I had this realization that they all are kind of symptoms of the underlying problem, which is that we just don't care enough about human beings in the tech industry. And so around the same time, I went vegan. And so I started learning about compassion because the idea behind veganism is that you have compassion for all beings. So I learned about compassion and what it means kind of from like a scientific point of view, what it means to see suffering in others and want to alleviate it. And I was like, that's what's missing from the tech industry. So that's what I'm going to bring to the tech industry. And uh, so that's why I started Compassionate Coding two years ago to bring that caring concern for human beings into the heart of the tech industry. Brilliant. And when you say the scientific, unpack that a little for me. What do you mean by that? Sure. So I feel like a lot of people learn about compassion through their religion or something like that. And so I started learning about compassion because when I went vegan, I went to this retreat about compassion. And the head of the retreat, the the leader and facilitator there, uh, shared this definition from the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley. And the definition for compassion they gave was just the ability to identify suffering in others and the active desire to alleviate that suffering. 
And so they, you know, shared peer reviewed research on our like how, what it means in the brain to have compassion and the benefits of compassion. And so it kind of made this compelling case for me that compassion can be a very rational thing. It's not just like feeling pity for someone or something like that. Yeah, that really makes me think of something that I really connect with when I see your writing and some of the recordings of the, of the presentations you've done, where you talk about, well, I think you're using the term catalytic skills, but the kind of this almost, it's not scientific to be human almost, or it's not, um, you know, there's somehow lesser or something like that, something less hard, like hard versus soft and that kind of stuff. So are, are those two, I mean, is that fair? Are those two things connected, that sort of approach and that idea of the wording that we use? I think so. So I think that there's nothing wrong with being soft, right? I think a lot of us can benefit from softening our approach. But what I witnessed in the tech industry in particular is that there's so much emphasis on hard technical skills. And so whenever you call something soft, you just it's kind of dismissed. It's like, oh, that's not important. And it's also worth noting that softness in our culture is often associated with women. And so then it's those two things combined, it's seen as, oh, soft means weak, it means women, it means all these things. And the truth is, that these skills, like being able to talk to people, communicate, being able to understand your emotions, they're not soft in the sense that uh, they're easy or weak or only for women. They're for all genders. They're har- it's hard to do, actually. And it's really beneficial on a team. So that's why I propose what you mentioned, this term catalytic skills, because I heard it from Daniel Goleman. He could just kind of mention it in an offhanded remark about how these skills, emotional intelligence skills help us catalyze our other skills. And so I was like, yes, that's that's a key point. And so I latched onto that and made it a bigger deal here. And I'm like, yes, cat- these skills like persistence, communication, empathy, they help us use all of our other skills more effectively. And so they catalyze the acquisition of and application of our other skills. So that's why I think we should stop calling these things soft skills and instead rebrand them, so to speak, as catalytic skills. Yeah, I really love that. I've started doing that in our team and it's, it's at the very least it's prompted discussions, which has been fun. Yeah, yeah. It, it's Usually that's where it starts. And I think that's interesting. I actually just heard from someone who saw one of my previous talks and she added to her resume catalytic skills. And it was a conversation piece in one of her interviews, you know, and I think that's the job she ended up getting. So it's like, you know, these things, we can make change here, positive change here for sure. Yeah, that's really cool. Erica, we, you had presentations that you've done, you're talking about gender diversity and stuff. I don't know if this connects, but I'm wondering if the design or UX conversations that we've had around that being difficult to explain or articulate, if you think that's connected to the same thing, this kind of changing of or misallocation of the priorities of what's difficult or important or whatever the wording is. I definitely think it ties in for sure. I tend to, I guess the reasoning behind the talks that I give is to build awareness, which lends to empathy. And I like some of these terminologies that you're using, April. So I'm definitely probably going to cannibalize some of that (laughs) to bring in. I do think, you know, empathy is huge because if we don't understand what somebody else is going through, you know, we're not going to get it from their perspective. So I see that as a huge problem in the industry as well, as well as the whole, you know, toxic male culture that seems to be talked about a lot on at least the podcasts that I listen to. And again, all this terminology, we use the soft skills, the emotions, the whatever, and and then thinking that that's not okay, because they've, they've been taught somehow through our culture that they need to be tough and strong and in your face and, you know, whatever all these things are. So... Yeah, I mean, I definitely think it all it all plays in together with what each of us are doing in our talks. What I'm interested in as well is 
taken that as really, as I see it, a really interesting or fundamental point, how then do you, other than sort of saying, okay, we're going to change the words, how do you see that actually, you know, sort of introduce these kind of topics and do more than just change the words and talk within the team and address some of these questions as within the team? Yeah, because, you know, it's true. It's not just about changing the terminology, although that is important because it opens the door to even have these conversations because previously people would just shut it down like, oh, soft skills, that's not important. So the terminology is important, but it is only that, just a first step. And so what I think is one of the biggest issues with trying to grow empathy, especially among uh, engineers and other sort of analytically minded people is that it's viewed as something you're born with or not. So you hear people saying, I'm just not a people person or, you know, oh, I'm an introvert. So I, you know, don't need to learn that. And nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, it's not like I'm still an introvert myself. It's not that emotional intelligence makes you an extrovert or something like that, or, or that empathy is something you're born with or not. It's something that you can develop. So I think one of the keys when I go in with teams is framing it as a skill, because that's exactly what it is. Empathy is a skill that can be grown. I think that's very valid because I don't, I'm not a very empathetic person. And it's something that I've definitely had to work on. And I still, it's a constant battle trying to figure that out. So that's, I think that's good to bring awareness around that as well and not just use it as a cop-out. Yeah, it is a cop-out, right? And I think it's it's worth mentioning that just a couple days ago, uh, Linus Torvalds, you know, creator of Linux, uh, came out, you know, he's very well known for being caustic and not showing empathy and, and, you know, even being abusive in his language. And he came out saying, you know, hey, my behavior has been harmful and I need to learn about how people's emotions work. And so when I saw that news, I was like, yes, okay, this is going to open even more doors. The fact that this guy that people point to as, oh, I don't need to care about it because, you know, this, this, the creator of Linux doesn't. So why should I care? Like now it's like, yes, finally, we can have these conversations. Yeah, that's like the point about representation or, or seeing evidence or leadership or whatever. So important, really interesting. I mean, I'd like to come back to that, but I'd also realized that there's something that we haven't done on the episodes, but what will be interesting, April, to define what you mean the difference or maybe what you mean and the difference between empathy and emotional intelligence. Yeah, and I'll, I'll throw in compassion too, just because it's in my uh, my company name. So, and I think definitions are important. So, I think emotional intelligence is this overarching term that includes a lot of different competencies and skills. So, I see emotional intelligence as kind of the umbrella that can include anything that involves people's emotions, and that's pretty much anything we do as humans, even like our being motivated in the world and being aware of what's going on in our head. I like Daniel Goleman's work on emotional intelligence, and he divides it into sort of four categories, self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, and relationship management. And so it's kind of awareness and management in both the self and social kind of arenas. And so empathy is a piece of that that falls under the social awareness and to a certain extent, the relationship management as well, because empathy is about being able to identify what other people are feeling and even to be able to feel those feelings. And I mentioned I'd add compassion because why not? So for me, compassion takes empathy and then adds the active desire to alleviate any suffering that's found there. So I kind of sometimes phrase it in my talks as compassion is like empathy plus action because you could feel what someone's feeling and just not really do anything about it, right? Not really care. Whereas compassion is like, oh, I feel that this person's suffering and I want to do something about that. So I think, you know, we you mentioned briefly like UX. I think UX a lot of times when you talk about reducing friction or eliminating pain points, that's really taking a compassionate approach to UX, for example. 
So that's really interesting. Maybe dig out some of the Daniel Kilman resources that you mentioned, the books, because that's worth exploring a bit more. So I'll put some links to that in the show notes on happyforce.com for anybody listening. And maybe that's, again, something I'd like to come back to. But one of the things that was really interesting there was when you were talking about or going back to the action thing, like what the action is. And actually, because one of the things that I think I find challenging sometimes is being clear on what actions you know, what to take, either something might seem like such a daunting problem to solve, or it might just be because I find it a difficult, say, it's a convers- even just as simple as having a conversation, because, you know, I'm finding it difficult as a conversation to have. So I don't know if it makes sense, but sort of to talk a little bit about what you mean when you say plus action and how to actually turn some of these things and these thought processes into concrete things. Yeah. So I think, you know, when you identify suffering, and let's say, it's just um, maybe the implied suffering of you have a web page and your users, you notice that there's a lot of fall off. There's a lot of drop off from that website. Like if it's a sign up page, people aren't signing up, right? And so there's something there, potentially some suffering that's causing them to, you know, get away from your site. Like even if that suffering, and I use the term very broadly, could be, you know, the way you present your offering is not consistent with what they need. And so that's a form of suffering because they have a need and you haven't met it. And so you're trying to understand what that is and you understand what it is through empathy, right? It's like, hmm, I wonder what they're feeling on this page. Let me, let me think about that. Maybe let me do some user tests, something like that. The compassion is, okay, so what can I do? Like, what can I change on that page based on my user research, based on, you know, anything like that, customer service reports? what can I change to help alleviate that suffering so that I can help these people better, right? So that's like a very kind of concrete example of how to apply compassion for like your website. And then for the more global things like, hey, I noticed that there's a lot of bias in the tech industry that's keeping women and people of color and other underrepresented groups out. Like that's a huge problem. And what can I do, right? As a privileged person, what can I do? And so I think in that realm, it's about seeing what, you know, what small steps you can take. So sometimes that's just doing a Google search on like how to be a male ally or how to be, you know, a white ally or whatever it is for, you know, uh, underrepresented groups, how to be a better ally. Then, you know, finding tips on what you can do. So maybe it's something as easy as when you're in a meeting, if you see that a woman is constantly being interrupted, maybe you use your privilege, you know, as a man in that situation to uh, say, oh, I think she was saying a point. Can we get back to what she was saying, you know, and kind of guide it back? And that's a way of alleviating suffering as well. So that's also a compassionate action. Yeah, that's brilliant. Really great examples. And I like the fact, especially with that last one, where you say it's just a kind of, you know, maybe bring the point back or acknowledge when somebody's been trying to say something that isn't being heard. It's a very easy, small thing to do, what doesn't feel like, you know, I need to go out and solve the world problems. That's a bit daunting mm-hmm. or scary or difficult or, or hits my budget or something else. It's just something as a small step. I really like that. How do you raise awareness, though, like in an office culture or something like I know so many people don't think of these things. So how do you bring about that awareness and get them to care about noticing things like, hey, you're interrupting or let's get back to our point, or, hey, I noticed that it's only women taking notes all the time. Maybe, you know, one of you gentlemen can take a note, take notes for the meeting sometimes, you know. How do you, how do you foster that, I guess, is what I'm, I'm asking. Yeah, so when I've been, like, at a company, like, working at a company um, on Teams, I would be very vocal about these things. So I would just say, like, for example, one time I was on a team and People were always saying, we need to hire a good iOS guy, you know, and I I think that that language is harmful because it kind of sets up 
an image in people's heads of who we're trying to hire. And it's a man because we use the word guy. And so I'd be very vocal about that. I was like, hey, you know, when we use this language, this is the effect. And then sometimes I would put that in the group Slack group, you know, the chat, work chat, where I would bring it up in like big group meetings. And I would send articles to sort support my point. And, you know, there is some emotional labor in that as a woman, you know, in a male dominated field. And you do, right. we, you do face some pushback for doing that. And, and when I did that at that company, pe- I was told that people were afraid of me because, you know, I was speaking up about diversity, you know, heaven forbid that I speak up about diversity. So there's some pushback there. But I also think that anything worth doing in life, you're going to get pushback for. So I, I'm just like, I, I don't live in fear. So like if I'm, if I care about something, I'm going to bring it up. And so I encourage others to live according to their values. And so if this is something they care about, I say, bring it up. So yeah, strategies are sharing articles, because there's a ton of research now, you know, like on the value of diversity in teams, on bias in the workplace. So sharing these materials is useful. And I think sometimes, you know, banding together in like diversity and inclusion groups can be helpful, just having a support group. And again, I think finding male allies because, and also allies that are higher up in the organization, because that's how you create more positive change is when there's people in power, uh, whether it's societal power or organizational power that can also help, you know, make gains in these areas. And then also, like, I try to raise awareness just across the whole tech industry. Like, I put out a lot of content on Twitter and through blogs and, um, you know, videos and all kinds of things. And uh, I I speak, uh, like, all over the place. And so I try to plant seeds of compassion and inclusion everywhere I go. And so I think that's something everyone can do is, you know, plant those seeds. Because I think that that's how change happens, you know, is like these small little things done by a lot of people can be very powerful. Do you find that there are circumstances in which there's almost a fear factor in having and raising those topics or raising those conversations? Uh, a fear, fear from... A fear factor, fear, fear of the pushback or fear of repercussions? Oh, absolutely. I mean, because there is, there is going to be pushback, like I mentioned. There are studies that show that women who advocate for other women are perceived as, you know, um, less competent and more like kind of troublemakers in the workplace. So there is a bias there. But I think one way we and so people who know this information, you know, may operate from that place of fear, like, okay, well, I should never bring these issues up because I'm going to face punishment for it. But you know, I think that fear is not a very useful way to lead your life. Like, I, I don't think that that like being driven by fear is the best way to make choices in life. And so I think it's worth acknowledging the risks and then deciding for yourself whether or not the risks are worth it to stand up for what you believe in, right? I also think that having these conversations can be difficult, but I also think that there's always somewhere else you could be working as well. So if you're in a place where even talking about these issues is like, you know, oh, I can't do that, maybe you should start looking for somewhere else to work, to be honest. That's a good, very valid point as well. And do you think... Or, can, or is there ways, so having said, having spoken to or met people who have said, oh, yeah, I would like to raise these com- these types of topics and have these conversations, but I'm scared that, you know, there's going to be a reaction or pushback. Have you got thoughts about some of the ways in which those points can be raised? Before you mentioned one thing that was really kind of um, non-aggressive, I guess, by just by sharing articles. Have you got any other thoughts and ways that that sort of can happen? You know, I I want to have this conversation, even in a team that's that is very open and honest, it can still feel like, oh, it's a difficult thing. You know, it's a you know, it's a kind of a, a difficult topic to raise. Yeah. So there's two things there. One is part of why, like my company is Compassionate Coding, and it's not like a diversity and inclusion company 
it's just that empathy really benefits everyone. And so and when you have empathy on a team, you're more likely to create a diverse and inclusive team just because empathy helps you understand people from different you know, backgrounds and with different perspectives. And so I think if you can frame the discussion sometimes around just more like empathy and understanding and that sort of thing, it can open up the conversation because it's something that is relevant to everyone. So it doesn't feel like, oh, this is just about women or something like that. It's like, no, this is really for everyone because it's just about having empathy. And and because, you know, even people in a position of privilege, so like, you know, maybe a wealthy white straight men in, in the industry, they too have certain things in their lives that maybe are painful or that make them feel isolated. And so if you can frame it as creating more inclusive environments will include everyone more, even those people who have traditionally more privilege, we can even make them feel more included as well. And so that's another way to frame it. And I think it can help to bring in a third party, you know, to, to facilitate these discussions, just because then there's someone there who's not involved in the politics of the company, who can help kind of make sure the discussion stays like a safe space, that sort of thing. So that's another strategy as well. Yeah, that makes sense. And I was thinking as you were answering that question that I didn't uh, I didn't mean that they kind of, you know, it being entirely in the responsibility of a person who's trying to raise an issue to be taking on all the responsibility for the impacts as well. But I uh, read an article recently, I'm not sure when you wrote it actually, but an article that you wrote about Stack Overflow. And something that stood out for me about that is that you made an effort in the article to acknowledge the fact that it wasn't like there was a bad side and a good side, that there was things going on for everybody involved in any conversation. <laughs> or And I think you touched on that there when with what you just said as well as like, you know, empathy is good for everyone, you know, sort of a rising tide raise, rises all boats, you know, that just by improving our standard of, of all of these things will improve everything from products to businesses to the teams to the, to the work culture. And I think that tying that back to what you were describing about emotional intelligence would be interesting and sort of one of the questions I wanted to ask when you described sort of raising those things within your own team and so on or your own experience, there must be points at which you say, Oh, I'm doing all this work, you know, I need to kind of stop, look after myself, or there's this, you know, there's times when I don't want to push or whatever. Is that fair? Yeah, no, I think that those are both great points there, which is one that when people when you want to have these discussions, like I I don't find it productive to sort of frame it as calling people out, for example, Um, like, you know, oh, you're a bad person, because you said guys or something like that. But more like having compassion for the person too, who you're trying to, you know, confront is is important, because I think, you know, building bridges between communities is really what I'm all about, not sort of punishing people or trying to make people out to be bad. Because the honest truth is that we all have biases. So and we all are suffering as human beings. And so I think remembering that can help frame conversations so they don't feel like anyone accusing anyone else, but more having a dialogue. So that's to your first point. Uh, but to the second, absolutely. Sometimes this stuff is hard work, especially, you know, I'm very active on Twitter and I get a lot of like pushback on a lot of what I say. And I get pushback from both sides. Like when this whole Linus Torvalds thing came out, I was like, trying to show compassion for him. I was like, this is great that he's saying these things, right? It's great. Um, and it's great that he wants to change. And then so I got pushed back from people saying, oh, you're being too easy on him. You need to be more angry at him. And I'm just like, what? Like, I think that, you know, if he's apologizing for being mean, and then we're mean to him about his apology, it's like, it's like the eye for an eye makes the whole world blind, right? And so that's why 
I have to step back sometimes and tie it back to my values, which is compassion for everyone. I truly believe in compassion and forgiveness for everyone. Like not that doesn't excuse everyone's behavior. It's just I don't want to carry around that bitterness and angerness because that'll eat away at me. So even people who have mistreated me in the industry and all that, I've come to at least a place where I can forgive them because otherwise it would make me sick to carry around that anger. And then self-care is important too. Just And I think you're touching on that by saying sometimes you need to step back and realize, hey, I don't need to have every debate all the time about these issues because I just can't keep that up like emotionally. It just would be it would be toxic to me. I like this metaphor from a book called The Art of Extreme Self-Care by Cheryl Richardson. She says, uh, just because someone throws a ball doesn't mean you have to catch it. And so I think sometimes, you know, especially online, it's like, I'll, I'll see someone tweet something to me and I'll be like, no, 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 that's not right. You know, I w- I'll want to respond that way. And I'm like, you know what, April, that's what they're interpreting in this moment. And that's for them. And I don't have to, you know, I don't have to have this debate right now. One of the things there is with people in position of leadership and a, and a responsibility for a team or something, and how important that is, the self-care aspect, I mean, from from a leadership point of view, something from my own experience, coming straight out of busy, busy work, rushing around and then jumping straight into something with the team and, you know, being able to do that in a way that doesn't cause problems or cause conflicts for something very minor like that. But um, how important is this? Or is it different? Maybe that's a better way to say it. Is it different, these kind of topics, these kind of thinking for those who are in leadership roles? I think so, to a certain extent. I mean, I think there's more responsibility there. Like, I think if you are in a leadership role, it's important that you make sure everyone feels included, you know, especially if you're in a you know position of power like that. You know, also that you've educated yourself on things like unconscious bias, because like I mentioned, we all have these biases and it's important to understand them. And if you're in a leadership role, you're making decisions that affect people's careers and their livelihood. And so it's really important that you at least understand your own biases. And so I think for leaders, it's even more important. But I'll also mention that I consider everyone a leader because I think we're all leading our own lives and sometimes we're leading projects at work and we can lead conversations even. And so I think it's important too, because sometimes I think technical engineers and stuff will look at management as like this sort of separate thing that they don't have to worry about because they're just on a computer all the time. And I think it's important to remember that they're leaders too. Like we're all leaders because we're making decisions that other people may be copying. We're having conversations where we're influencing others. And so I think it's also useful for us all to consider ourselves leaders. Yeah, that's really insightful too. There's so much more I'd love to keep talking about, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but I'd like to try to tie the conversation a little bit back to diversity specifically in teams. And diverse teams are stronger teams you know, bringing diverse uh, viewpoints, opinions, experiences, and so on will lead to better products and 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 all of that kind of stuff. But it also can bring challenges, right? So you've got diff- you've got more different viewpoints, and therefore, or is it fair to say that communication and and having an emotional intelligence across the team is harder to do? Yeah, no, I think it is. I mean, I think I read an article that said that it's easy to have empathy for people who are just like you, but that it's harder to have empathy for people who are not like you. So I think and because empathy is part of emotional intelligence, I think that's a good example where, yeah, I think it is harder to have to be able to consistently grow emotional intelligence. But I think it might even be more that to do well on a team with diversity and to like even create a team with more diversity uh, sustainably the people on the team need to grow their emotional intelligence, maybe is a good way of putting it. And so when you say growing emotional intelligence, are you deliberately choosing the word grow? And how does that actually, you know, is that is there something that 
you can t- you can talk about about how that would actually something I can actively work on myself? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, I mentioned those four components like self awareness, self management, etc. And those are you know all full of like little sub skills that you can absolutely grow by practice, right? So what I really do with teams is I teach them about emotional intelligence, and I give we do like activities to help grow your emotional intelligence. So a lot of times it's just practicing these things. So sometimes it's like reframing a situation. It's learning how to move a conversation from sort of one style to another. So if you're in a conversation where people are trying to blame each other and accuse each other of things, you try to shift it instead to a calmer conversation where you're describing, you know, what the impact was to you personally. So I use techniques like from nonviolent communication as well, which is, you know, created by Marshall Rosenberg. And it's this idea that instead of trying to sort of blame people and say like, well, you did this and, you know, this was wrong and all that. Instead, you frame it in terms of here's what I observed and here's how it made me feel. Uh, Here's what I'd like to see happen for these reasons and kind of reframing conversations. And those are all techniques that you practice and then you get better at and then it becomes easier. So it's definitely, like I said, emotional intelligence is a set of skills. So you can grow them in the same way that you grow anything else. We talked a lot about that kind of the giving part, I guess, the, the, the contributing to conversations, the raising points, the looking after yourself and so on. But one of the things that I see often as a challenge, uh, for example, with code reviews or giving feedback is the receiving of that kind of information as well. Is that something you can talk about? Yeah. So one thing I talk about is how, although in these workshops, I teach people how to give feedback in sort of a constructive way. I also mentioned that not everyone's had this training. So some people will give you feedback in a not so constructive way. And so one thing you can do on the receiving end, first of all, is to kind of frame it as no matter what kind of feedback you get, it's someone else's opinion. So just, you know, start from there. So then you don't take it too personally, because it's not like you're bad or you're wrong. It's more somebody else has a different opinion about how you might operate. So remember that it's opinions and feedback are always subjective. And then you can sort of take what you've heard and try to unpack the different components of it. So what is this person observing? And then what's the impact on them? And what's going on in their head that makes them want me to change my behavior? Like, why are they giving me this feedback? And so really, this is where empathy is key. because no matter what somebody else is doing, and this is especially true if you're on a diverse team where there's different people who have different approaches and everything, a lot of times it seems like people are just being weird. Like they're doing weird things that don't make sense to you. It seems like, you know, why are they doing that? Why would they do it that way? Like even in the code, right? Like you talked about the code review. It's like, why did that was a weird way to do that? Or that's not how I would do it. And what's key is not framing it as when you receive feedback, thinking, okay, this person, like they gave me this feedback that I don't really agree with. But what's going on in their head that makes it make perfect sense to them? And so empathy is kind of part of it is constructing a model of what's going on in the other person's head. And we can never know for sure. But just remember that they might value different things. They have different priorities. Maybe they've worked on similar projects and had bad experiences with some approach or some framework or something. And so the key when you're receiving is to try to construct that model. So we've already talked about you know how to understand what's going on in yourself, but try to understand what's going on in that other person. And then you you kind of can make peace with whatever you hear because you realize, oh, this makes total sense in their world because this is how they view things, you know? Mm. Is there a process of going from, um, I've received this feedback and I don't understand it, or I've, <laughs> I'm trying not to react in the way that I'm, you know, with a knee-jerk reaction, but I don't understand what, where 
what's going on in their head. And so now I kind of need to, what can happen sometimes is we can just make assumptions and find that we're making wrong assumptions. Is that part of that process as well? I mean, maybe that's, you know, if the process is too strong, but is that something that's worth thinking about? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think active listening sometimes means asking clarifying questions, right? So if you're hearing something and it's not making sense to you, saying, could you explain a little bit more about what you mean by that? Or could you, you know, clarify this point? Or when you said this, could you say what that meant? Um, And I think that that's, or also sometimes, you know, you mentioned making assumptions. You can try to like make those assumptions, but instead of just assuming them, ask for uh, confirmation. So say, it sounds like you'd like it if I changed it to this. Am I understanding you correctly? So you can ask those clarifying questions. Or or it sounds like this upset, if it's like kind of an emotional thing, you could say, it sounds like this upset you. Could you explain, like, is that a fair assumption? Or is like, is that true? Or, you know, something like that. So those clarifying questions can help you when you're confused or when you want to make sure that person doesn't feel like you're just assuming that you know what's going on with them. I might be showing my ignorance here, but that sounds like some of the stuff from NBC, you know, nonviolent communication. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. That's that's a big inspiration for my work. I'm a big fan of Marshall Rosenberg's work. And I would love it if like everyone in the tech industry would read and practice nonviolent communication. <laughs> Is there a sort of beginner's, if somebody says, oh, I am interested in learning more about NBC, where would you point them to? Honestly, I think the book, I think Nonviolent Communication, the original book by Marshall Rosenberg is the best one. Um, I think for the people who don't read books anymore, I'm sure you can find a summary online, some sort of Cliff's Notes type thing. But I like the book because, you know, you get to hear it from his mouth and everything like that. And I'm sure there are some videos too, I'm sure you could find. There's like a Nonviolent Communication Center as well that, you know, has resources. But I think the book really is just a classic. And I think, but it's still so relevant. You know, even in the book, he, he says, you know, nonviolent communication. He's like, also, you could call it compassionate communication. And so really, it's about how can I engage in a, in a way that's not going to cause suffering to other people? And that's not going to cause suffering to me. And this is relevant, not just at work and in, in the tech world. But I mean, this could help heal a lot of the problems in our world. And so I think it's, it's worth a read and giving it a shot, nonviolent communication. Confession, I have, it's been on my list for many years now, I actually have to go and properly read it remote rather than just the cliff notes. <laughs> Talking about the receiving feedback thing, and Erica, this is something I've always greatly admired from many designers, is that from clients, <laughs> and that's sort of, we, ha- we have this thing within the industry, I think, too much where we kind of mistreat internally, the internal monologue is mistreating the client. I think that I see it most clearly when a designer is receiving you know, because it's so immediately visual and so important that it gets this really aggressive, often feedback. And if well, I'm wondering if there is difference in that dynamic versus what you were describing before, I was imagining a scenario within a team where we're more like peers, but as a company or as a person producing something for a client and getting feedback, if there is something, if there's parallels to that? Yeah, I think that the power dynamics do come into play there, you know, when, when you feel like somebody's paying you for this work and, you know, directly and, and whatnot, you might not feel, but I think, you know, these, the, the nonviolent communication techniques would still work. You know, you still want to, the goal there is still to sort of unpack what the person's looking for. So when you get that really, you know, harsh feedback to, you know, try to unpack it and understand it. And as far as the internal kind of understanding of thinking about the client and like maybe in negative terms, you know, I think that, it's good to reframe that as well. Like, because I think 
thinking of, oh my God, this is such a difficult client. And, you know, just kind of, if you feel bitter and resentment, bitterness and resentment, I feel like that mainly hurts you, not the other person. Right. And so I think being able to think, huh, like they're just, they're just trying to get the best work and they're, they're probably not deliberately trying to take advantage of me. I mean, some are right, but I think it's better just to assume positive intent rather than kind of make yourself sick with assuming negative intent. And so I think, you know, a lot of the same techniques work. And, you know, I try to, although there are power dynamics involved, like, and maybe this is just me because I'm an entrepreneur and I just, I, I really don't like hierarchies or like, you know, anything like that. Like, I just think of everybody as the same. Like, I talk to the same to the CEOs I work with, to, you know, and the individual contributors. Like, to me, it just, I, I don't really care. And I feel like if someone doesn't like how I'm doing, like, part of my self-care is if I, I'm, I'm living according to my core values. And if how I, if somebody doesn't like that, then, you know, it's also fair for me to uh, leave that situation. And so I think that that's that element of self-compassion that I think is important. It's interesting that um, you brought up how we can tend to talk as a team behind the client's back if we don't, <laughs> we, we don't like them. And, and that does get really toxic. I, I guess I've always viewed it as a steam blowing thing. I'm an oral processor. So sometimes I need to process things and then I move on. But I, <laughs> I can see how that could, could wind up and be a negative thing. What I also ha- find hard with clients is they don't know how to communicate what they mean when they're giving non-constructive feedback. Trying trying to learn how to ask the right questions to guide the discussions. I just find that completely challenging. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know. I haven't read nonviolent communication either. So I'd be interested to know if I could pick up some tips for even something like that and how to direct a conversation more more beneficially. That's a good one. And another good one is uh, Difficult Conversations. Uh, it has like four different authors, and I don't remember all of them, but it's a good one too, Difficult Conversations. And they include specific examples of like somebody preparing a presentation for the boss, and then the boss isn't happy or something, and how to how to reframe those conversations and whatnot. So I think that's another good one to recommend. But you know, it really comes down, and, and you're right, sometimes we do like blow off steam and, and vent. And I think it's just a matter of like, who you do that to, and then how often you do it. <laughs> and so, you know, because I, I sometimes in my talks share commit messages from GitHub where people, you know, say, oh, this is for the idiot user or, you know, stupid user, blah, blah, blah. And I think sometimes if we think of our, you know, in this time we're talking about clients, but it's a similar thing because for engineers, you know, they think, oh, this is for that stupid user or whatever. Like, I think that that's really a negative, yeah, toxic way to think about the people we're building for, right? Because in theory, we're trying to, you know, help them, right? That's why we're doing our work, uh, whether they're clients or users or whatever. But I think asking clarifying questions, like you mentioned, some people, one thing about feedback I think is worth mentioning that I didn't really touch on is that, and this comes from a podcast that I, I listen to called Hurry Slowly. And the person who's doing it said, when you're giving feedback, have in mind what you want to achieve. Because if you're just saying like, well, this is ugly, like no one needs to hear that, you know, that's not really helping anyone. And so she gave the example that someone just criticized her voice. They said, I don't like the sound of your voice. And it's like, okay, well, like, you know, I can't really, I mean, do you think I'm really going to go out and get like voice coaching lessons to change that just for you? It's like, what do you expect to happen? And so I think if you don't get that in the feedback, uh, like if you're receiving it and you don't get that action item, that's where it's good to ask you know, for clarifying questions, like try to unpack that a bit more, like, even if the only action item is having a conversation about this redesign or whatever it may be. There are, like I said once before, there's so much more. And this conversation is something <laughs> I could go on for hours. So, um, but we are running out of time. Um, April, there's one last thing I would love to try and leave our listeners with. And that is, you mentioned in one of your talks, this idea of a runbook. And 
oh, maybe that's not the thing you would pick. But if you were going to leave us with one sort of small little thing that we can do in terms of growing emotional intelligence or developing this area of the catalytic skills, what would you leave us with? So yeah, in that run book, I think I would use the first step, which is slow down. I think in you know the tech industry and just in our modern world, we're so busy being busy, right? And so I think that that is what keeps us from taking care of ourselves. And, you know, there's that saying, you can't pour from an empty cup. So if we're not taking care of ourselves, we can't take care of others. And so I think slowing down both to take care of yourself, but also to reflect on and think about the other people and your environment. I think if, if we're moving quickly, we're likely to be aggressive. And if we slow down, we're giving a chance for compassion to grow. So I think that would be my biggest tip is to slow down, do some reflection. This might be journaling, it might just be meditation, but just do something in your life where you take some time and slow down. uh, And it'll actually save you time in the long run because you'll become more effective. Thank you, April, so much. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Likewise, this is really great. Awesome. And thanks again, Erica. Thank you. We'll see you again next week. Thanks, everybody. You can get all the links and notes from this episode on happyporchradio.com, where you can also find out how to send us questions, feedback, and get involved in the conversation about this series. If you enjoyed the show, please share with anyone else who might enjoy it too. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.